0: Hi, I'm Dr. Hilary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in Other People's Problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
0: Hi. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that this episode contains descriptions of sexual violence. If you're experiencing intimate partner violence or have a loved one who is, you can find information on where to turn for help at cbc.ca slash WTP resources. Please take care. So I've been thinking, if the shame we carry from abuse and gender-based violence was something you could physically see, it would be an ugly, prickly blanket. And every time you went out to buy groceries or stood waiting to cross the street, you'd see all sorts of people shrouded in that heavy blanket. And you'd be reminded it's everywhere because there are so many victims of gender-based violence. What I'm learning is that talking about it is helping me shrug off that blanket. And it's in speaking up that you can start to see who else has had their own struggle. You recognize who's around you. I've been telling my story, but the person who's helping me has her own. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. How are you? I'm well. How about you? When I first began working with Farzana Doctor, I learned she's not only a psychotherapist, she's a novelist. Just after we began our sessions, she published her fourth novel. It's called Seven. And I started to learn how her life and her writing are entwined. So when I first connected with you for therapy around going public with my experience of violence. I didn't know that I was speaking to a woman who was about to go public with her own experience of gender-based violence.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wasn't planning to be doing writing on this subject, but I would sit down with my cup of coffee and these fully formed fictional scenes were just coming into my brain. So I started writing them down. And by the time I had about 20 or so of these scenes, I realized that, oh, I think I'm writing a novel. And it's a little bit similar to my story.
0: The plot of Seven is set in New York and Mumbai, among the Dawoodi Bora, a religious community with strong roots in India. And it follows a series of characters, women, who are subjected to a ritual called katna, a form of female genital mutilation. It's the cutting of the clitoral hood.
1: One of the things that happens with cutna is that, you know, it's a trauma situation, so dissociation is really common. And because this is largely done by amateur, you know, cutters, and because the tissue is so fragile, so much more damage can be done. And then the other thing that happens is you're told... Um, nothing really happened, why are you crying, and never talk about this, this is a secret. And in my book, I have these three cousins who go through it together, and they've never talked to one another about it. And also in my family, nobody talked about it, like zero.
0: How old were you when this happened to you?
1: I was four, so at a prime age for dissociation from traumatic events.
0: And how old were you when you realized this had happened to you?
1: I had many moments through my 20s and 30s and 40s of thinking, something is not quite right here. And I don't know what it is. And I can't put my finger on it. And then probably in... 2012, a couple of my cousins started talking about this issue a little bit. And it hit me very hard, it hit me very hard. And it became a bit of a preoccupation. I began to have, you know, nightmares and um, body memories and little bits of flashbacks. And then I had to return to therapy. And that's when I started to get these sort of patches of memories, kind of like puzzle pieces that were beginning to fill in the puzzle.
0: And when you talk about The trauma and the way that you were processing that, what kind of emotions were attached with that, Farzana?
1: So at first it was intense fear, and then I had lots of rage. The rage shifted over time, um, and I think writing the novel helped me to shift the rage because I started writing these characters who were believers in Kutna, both really orthodox women. And I have orthodox women in my own family who I love, right? So I was processing this whole thing of like, I'm really angry, but I love them.
0: And when you talked about the rage, and like, was there anger at the person who had done like, do you, did you, do you know the person who did this to you?
1: So I know the person, um, and I've chosen to cut her out of my life for now, um, because part of you know shining that flashlight on all of this made me realize that you know she's always been a bully, so I set that boundary. I'm furious with her, and I also understand her. she's a victim too. She didn't know any better.
0: Have you confronted her about this?
1: I haven't. Um, But one of the problems with confronting abusers is that you can be put into a situation of um, more gaslighting, denial, more abuse. So this is a very hard conversation for people to have, I think.
0: I'll never know what kind of conversation I might have had with Pat if I could have confronted him whether he would have apologized or made me feel worse. So now all I can do is go to the funeral home to see if there's anything I can learn that might help me understand who he was. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. This is Welcome to Paradise. Sue picks me up at the Halifax airport.
2: I'm glad to see you. It's a really bizarre kind of set of circumstances that's bringing us together
0: right now. It's been a while since I've I've been back, but it's only been five days since I opened that email from Pat's sister telling me he's died of a heart attack. You know, I don't think I'd go without you. I just, um, I had this weird, bizarre feeling that what if it's a trick, what if it's a trick? That he's not dead, but he wants to. He knows that I'm doing a podcast. And he wants to get me. I've been fretting about going to Pat's visitation. The ex-wife showing up after 40 years. But when I wrote to ask Pat's sister if it would be okay for us to show up, she said, we would love to see you and Sue. We head out the next day for the funeral home. It's in a small town, two hours away. As we drive along, I'm still worrying. Yeah, I just, like, I don't understand why I feel so weird. I mean, it's interesting. Is it unethical, rude, to go to the visitation where no one knows I'm working on this podcast? I'm nervous about what to expect. But first, I want to take a quick detour on the way out of town. Here you are. This is Lacewood? To the apartment building where Pat and I lived. Okay. Oh, slow down. Okay. That's your apartment? This one? Yeah. Yeah, and I was on the second floor. Lacewood Drive. Huh. What's... This is where, the first time you beat me up, it was in here.
2: What's it feel like? Pulling in the driveway here.
0: It's okay. It's, um... I mean, this was this. That's this was the place. Really bad. Well, yeah, this was the place I realized, you know, that it's dangerous when you close the door. Right, if you're walking down here at night, yeah. it'll be dark. It'll be nobody around. Yeah. And um, and I realize that's not where you're in danger. You're in danger when you go in the house.
2: Yeah. Isn't that a scary statement to make, huh?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And this leads down to the bedroom. We head out of the city, down the highway, toward the funeral home. Not quite sure what we're getting ourselves into. Turn right on Highway 4, then turn right. We arrive in town with time to spare. So we decide to check out Pat's house. You
2: know, drive. There. I'm drive by it, there. Okay?
0: I'd found it on Google Street View back when I thought I could just boldly show up at his door and ask if he'd talk to me. Okay, so it's oh God, that it's house. So It's that shirt hanging on the line. Yeah, it looks like... Um, it's a cute little house. It's a cute looks little like house. It, like
2: it. doesn't look like a house that's loved, though. You know that? You know, the weeds growing up by the... You know, all that lumber just tossed out.
0: For the better part of a year, I pictured myself walking up to this house and knocking on the door. It would keep me awake at night. Would I go in? Sit at the kitchen table? Really talk to him? Would he be hostile, violent, repentant? This house and the man inside have loomed large for so long and now he's gone. And this house is just a house. It's as if someone let the air out of a balloon Turn right on Main Street. We're early, so let's just go right by. Yeah.
2: We'll find a place to park beyond
0: it, okay? Yeah, just sit and talk for a minute? Yeah. The funeral home is a beautiful old Victorian mansion with a wraparound porch. The autumn leaves are scattered around a wide expanse of grass. I've thought hard about what to wear. A long, oatmeal-colored sweater over black trousers and a white blouse, and beautiful short black boots. The more insecure I feel, the more carefully I dress. I'm feeling very, like I'm feeling physically unsettled. Like I'm feeling like butterflies or something. And I'm...
2: Is it nervousness?
0: Yes. Okay, so let's talk this down.
2: Nobody's going to be confrontational in this setting. And nobody's going to be confrontational after 40 years. So there's no firing squad here. Um, I I, un- I understand. I understand your, your trepidation about this. I, I, I do get that. Um, but as your friend, my duty is to help you calm your nerves before we go in. OK, so why do I need to go in at all? You do. It's it's the last tack in the box. I, I think... I truly believe if you didn't do this after so many times saying that you wanted to have some sort of closure with a conversation, that you, you would kick your ass. Are you thinking you've misjudged yourself?
0: No, I think that's true. I think that unless I venture in, I don't know. And if it's not a good idea, I can leave. Do you want to go in? Yeah, I guess. I'm going to turn this off now.
2: Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC
0: original podcast about the messiness of human connection. The show features deeply personal stories, like a mother forced to press charges against her own son, a couple that falls in love through Google Translate, and a man whose father-in-law asks him to build his coffin. Subscribe to Love Me at cbc.ca slash loveme, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, one, two, three. Um, I'm recording. Um, just left the funeral home. Wow.
2: What is in your
0: head right now? I don't, um, I find it interesting. It's about an hour later, and we're back in the car. In the funeral home, I'd barely noticed the urn with Pat's ashes. I got talking to his brother-in-law while Sue wandered toward a cluster of other relatives. So now I'm filling her in on what happened with me. So we're standing there, and um, his sister's husband comes up and says, I don't know you. And then I say I'm Anna Maria, and he hugs me. Okay. And it's a heartfelt hug. He said, I have something I want to give you. Uh-huh. So um, he comes back with his bag. Right here, I've got it. And he says, I don't know if you have one of these. And it's the brown velvet photo album of our wedding. Yeah. And I said, thank you. I'll, I'll take it. Thank you. It's the same photo album I have with the picture of the two of us in front of the sign that says, welcome to paradise. His brother-in-law told me that in the years after the divorce, Pat hadn't taken care of himself as much as he should have. He told me when the marriage ended, Pat was really upset and depressed mm. for a long time. And he said he was always trying to find himself and he said, I don't think he ever did. He didn't even have another relationship. He had some close friends, but he never, he, said he was always like on his own. He didn't have another relationship. His sister told me that he wrote a song for me and that during all the years I was hosting The Current, Pat listened to me on the radio every morning. All those years he listened to the show and he was proud of me. Very odd. There was so much to take in and as I talked to his brother-in-law, there was more. And he said, you know, he got the money from the settlement for the abuse. And I said, the abuse from the church. And he said, yes. That's something I haven't mentioned yet. Pat had hinted that he'd been abused when he was younger. He and his friends would joke that their first sexual experiences were with the parish priest. They never called it abuse. I don't think they had the words back then. Joking was their way to cope. And I never asked him about it. I didn't have the words either. But when Pat's brother-in-law alluded to it at the funeral home, things started to fall into place for me. So this brother-in-law of his... Yeah. We talked a little more... And I actually said something to the effect that I always wondered about that. I thought that what he went through affected what happened in our marriage. Yeah. And he nodded almost knowingly. It turns out Pat received a settlement sometime later in his life, though it likely would never have been enough to compensate for all the damage done. As I left the funeral home, his brother-in-law invited me back to Pat's house along with the others. I declined. It just didn't feel right. I'd shown up without telling them what I was working on. Anyone can walk into a funeral home, I reasoned. But they were grieving. It wasn't the time to tell them about the podcast. And joining them at Pat's house, his private space... Felt like crossing a line. Still, his brother in law told me if I was ever in their city, I could drop in and we could talk more. Sue and I continue discussing it all back in Halifax over wine.
2: Um, so the first thing is, and this is me being bossy pants again, I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm going to ask you to be very cautious. Keep
0: going
2: and just stop and weigh the pros and cons of having a further conversation with them, getting into those sordid details. Because you could end up in a quagmire that will distress you more than what you finished with today.
0: You're worried that I'm gonna waver from telling the story that I have always thought needs to be told. Because I'm going to start to feel bad about them. Yes. So you're worried that I'm going to pull my punches for fear of hurting their feelings. Yes. Yes. Sue's words echo in my head as I fly home to Toronto. I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I don't want to censor myself either. I know I need to tell Pat's family that I'm working on this series, and I do want to know if we can talk more. I'm still curious about what they can tell me about him. I wait a week and write an email to his sister, offering my condolences once again, and then shifting. I am in the midst of writing a podcast that is both a memoir and a look at the long-term effects of intimate partner violence. I had intended to include a conversation with Pat, with no trite demand for an apology or dramatic confrontation, but rather with the hope that he would tell me something that would help me understand. I imagine it is difficult for you to read what I'm writing. If there are things you'd like me to know about him, I'd welcome a further conversation. I hit send. A couple of weeks go by. No answer. Two weeks later, still no answer. I write again. And then a reply. When we saw you at the funeral home, we were so pleased. And then your request came, and we were so disappointed. You had many years to talk to Pat and seek his permission. Permission to delve into someone else's troubled life is not mine to give. I'm thrown by this. It takes me a few days to respond. I appreciate your wish to protect your brother, I write. The podcast I'm working on is not about Pat's troubled life. It's about my own. My note is careful. A few days later, the reply is just as careful, saying, I'm sorry that you have suffered so much, and I have to say I didn't even know things were that bad. Pat indicated that you two were going along different paths in your careers, and this caused impossible difficulties. I only knew for sure that he was never at peace, no matter how much he tried to get beyond the mental scars that happened in his childhood. I'm shaken by all of this. I'm not interested in a confrontation with anyone in his family. But all this drags me back to when Pat could make me feel so unworthy. At the same time, I now see who he became more clearly. He suffered from childhood abuse. I've learned he lived on pennies a day, that he was a loner when he died. The man I'd once seen as a spontaneous, gregarious partner to explore the world with had never again strayed far from home. As my life became more expansive, his was shrinking. After the first few episodes of this podcast come out, I start to learn even more. A cousin of his reaches out and tells me that when she tried to leave an abusive relationship, Pat accused her of lying, defended her abuser, and would taunt her about it at family events. All that happened not long after I'd divorced Pat, as if the anger and blame that he had piled onto me was transferred to her. And I am reminded that the person I thought I was marrying... He never really existed. I have my theories about how his own abuse translated into violence toward me, but I don't know for a fact how to draw that line from one to the other. I do know that his treatment of me left me with my own anger. I was never good enough, never smart enough, I was tough on myself and occasionally on those around me. It took me years to recognize my anger, and to work on letting it go. So, how how do you feel? Uh, I have lots to tell you. Um, it Farzana, it's so. The day after I get home from Nova Scotia, I fill Farzana in on everything. Uh, something told me he hadn't gotten married again. Something told me he was living alone. Um, I didn't think he would lived a sad life. I, I was kind of surprised because, I don't know, it's like the, the, the partial monster, or not, I don't know if monster's the word, but the thing that you might be afraid of or that you've built up over the years. And it's... Yes. It, it, it fell away v- very significantly yesterday. Yeah, there's no monster anymore. No. There's no threat. There's not even a partial threat. There's no, there's no threat of you can't tell that story. There's no threat of, I, I wanted to hurt you once, so I'll hurt you again. Not that long ago, I took my dog for a walk. She tugged on the leash just as I stepped onto a patch of ice. I ended up in surgery with a badly broken wrist. As I lay in the recovery room, I overheard the woman next to me talking on her phone, pretty sure it was with her boyfriend. She wanted to know where he'd gone, why he wasn't at the hospital to take her home. I didn't know anything about her, but something in her voice got me wondering if she was okay in that relationship. And as I lay there eavesdropping, glancing at my newly wrapped wrist, I started thinking about all the women who end up in the same recovery room because of intimate partner violence and how many of them have to go right back home to their abuser. So as I was thinking more about the shame that I've carried and the blame that I carried, Mm. I realized that I have conflated Blame and shame and pain. Mm. Almost as if they were three threads braided together. Every time I felt them or looked at them, they were all together. In the course of talking to you and looking back at all of this, I've been able to separate those threads. I think I've come a long way in confronting that shame in being able to talk about this. Mm -hmm. I think I've also come a long way in recognizing that I still carried a lot of blame and I'm letting that fall away. And as those things fall away, the thing that remains is something I identify as pain. Mm -hmm. I have allowed myself to understand that it was pretty bad. Yes. And when I realized that I felt so good because the pain I can deal with, the pain is in my past. Mm -hmm. but I felt really good about the fact that I no longer had them wrapped around each other.
1: I think sometimes we can't get to the pain until we've done a bit of work around understanding the meaning, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, And I'm just starting to see more of the the good things, right? Like I was concentrating on where I thought I was weak and Mm. now as I'm pulling along... I see where I'm strong. And and I think you were strong the whole time.
1: You were just um what's the word like you were detoured a little bit by this experience. That's what trauma does, right? It delays things, it gets you focusing on the healing of the trauma, so you're you're not in in as much of a straight path as you might have been before, right? Everybody has something that detours them or waylays them I think
0: that's a really nice way to put it Farzana because detours aren't Mm -hmm. dead ends they just lead you around the trouble and put you back on Mm -hmm. that's a nice way to think of it that you know you can get back on a journey with your life Mm -hmm. you know what I'm thinking Mm. you know when you finally let something go it's like a band-aid Mm-hmm. You got to pull it off, and it d- doesn't really hurt. It's just a little bit of a pull. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what I'm feeling. I feel it, like as it, you know, whooshes yes. away or like something, but um, I'm letting it go. Yeah. It's coming out. It's like literally leaving my body. I think it is literally leaving your body. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's a good thing, right? Yeah, it's a very good thing. Yeah. Yeah. What I experienced will always be part of me. But after decades of carrying a secret, after a year of turning myself inside out in therapy, after putting it all out there in this very public way, I cannot tell you just how light I feel right now. How the shame I once couldn't even name is finally falling away. It's what I wish for any of you living with the burden of what was done to you. The shame is never ours to carry. It belongs to the abuser. And you, like me, are stronger than you think. You are not weak or indecisive. And you are worthy of a far better life. Please believe that, because it's true. If you're experiencing intimate partner violence or have a loved one who is, you can find information on where to turn for help at cbc.ca slash WTP resources. Welcome to Paradise is written and produced by me, Anna Maria Tremonti. Sarah Melton is our associate producer. Chris Oak is our story editor. Sound design and additional story editing by Mira Burt Wintonic. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our senior producer is Damon Fairless. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Norani. The executive director of CBC Podcasts is Leslie Merklinger. And I want to thank Leslie for believing in this project from the moment I walked into her office. Special thanks to Farzana Doctor, Dave Downey, Cecil Fernandez, Fabiola Carletti, Tanya Springer, Willow Smith, Joanna Landsberg, Merrill Cooper, Tanya Koivusalo, CBC Archives, my friends Sue and Vance in Halifax, my dad Tulio, Atia Khan, watch her film A Better Man, Jane Moncton Smith, read her book, please. In Control. Farah Khan, Jennifer Koshan, Barb Cole, Steve Levitan, Shelley Saywell, Jen Moroz, and of course my wonderful partner, John Filion. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, visit annamariatremonti.com. And if you liked this series, please help others find it by rating and reviewing it, or simply by telling a friend. Thanks so much for listening.